Good morning. We'll be uh, continuing our journey in James today. So uh, as Ben said, if you open up James chapter 3, we'll be going through verses 1 through 12 this morning. So if you got it, say amen. Okay. Uh, and I'll read the scripture and then we'll pray and then we'll, we'll begin. James chapter 3. Verses 1 through 12, starting in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let me pray. Father, I'm so thankful that you have, in your kindness to a world that has rebelled against you, that you have condescended and decided to reveal yourself, to open up a channel through which we might behold the glory of our Creator through the word that you've given us. We thank you that you've moved men along, carried along by the Holy Spirit, inspired by you to write down your very words, your very thoughts, that we might be transformed by beholding your glory through your word. I thank you especially for this time that we have together over the next couple of weeks and the weeks that we've had to go through the book of James, go through the words of this man that walked with Christ from the time he entered the world. He knew of this man, Jesus who was his earthly older brother. And I just pray that you would humble us, that you would quiet us to sit at his feet as he now sits at the feet of not only his brother, but of his God, of his creator. So transform us, Lord. I pray particularly for this, the issue of our words and our speech and how we use this 
tongue that you have given us to articulate, to give expression to what's going on inside our souls and inside our hearts. I pray that you would make this time a means of edifying us and drawing us closer to you and more in conformity with Christ. Do it in his name and for our joy. I pray. Amen. So we've been going through the book of James for the past couple of weeks, and right now we're in the middle of the book. And one of the things that we said when we began this series is that James, in many respects, is different than some of the other New Testament letters, in that it seems that uh, James doesn't always follow a consistent theme throughout the book. Uh, His letter, his book, is much more akin to maybe the book of Proverbs, a, a book of sort of scattered sayings that aren't all necessarily interrelated, but all have to do with how someone walks and conducts himself in the Christian life. Um, but the more that I've studied and looked at this book and, and read some more commentaries, we can see that there are a few things that James nevertheless repeats and comes back to repeatedly and are sort of uh, sub-themes throughout the book. And one of them, one of the most prevalent themes is this issue of being double-minded, that is, of Uh, one who claims to be a believer, having one foot in the kingdom, one foot uh, devoted to following Christ, and the other foot in the world. And in a number of ways, this issue of double-mindedness comes up again and again. And so really, after looking at the book of James, in case you are like me or like many others that sort of have viewed James as more of a primitive New Testament book and maybe the letters of Paul as something that you move on to greater theology the more that you walk with the Lord. I would caution you against that because I believe James deals with this issue of double-mindedness, which is an issue that we often all find ourselves when maybe some of the initial joy of walking with Jesus begins to wane and the issues and realities of life begin to settle in and weigh upon you and the difficulties that you face make you more jaded to wanting to fall uh, follow wholeheartedly after Christ. And we can easily slip into this issue of sort of being double-minded, of uh, saying that we want to follow Christ wholeheartedly and yet being more and more drawn to the world. And so if that is you today, I think James has a word for us, particularly as it relates to our tongue or our speech. And so he began uh, chapter 1, verse 8, mentioning initially this issue of being double-minded, and he sort of tackled that subject in a number of areas so far. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, he dealt with the issue of people who are double-minded in the sense that they claim to follow Christ, and yet they show partiality towards their brothers in the faith, um, discriminating or treating them differently based on whether or not they are poor or are seen as invaluable or insubordinate to some of the other members of the congregation. That's double-mindedness, James says. Moving on, he he looks in verses 14 through 26 of chapter 2, he's critiquing those who claim to follow the Lord and claim to know a lot about the Lord, and yet their works don't evidence this fact of a genuine relationship with him, a consistent walk with him. They are double-minded. So here again in chapter 3, he's dealing now uh, at length with this issue of the tongue and our speech and how many of us can often find ourselves in a place of being double-minded, of blessing the Lord, of issuing praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, and yet 
uh, in the very next breath, dishonoring him with the things that we say or we allow to come forth out of our mouths. Uh, so what I want to do today is just sort of walk through the text, walk through these 12 verses, and I'll break it down into four sections and uh, really reserve uh, a more pointed application time to the end. There was a pastor that I was reading, and he had listed 20 resolutions that we find throughout, really, the book of James, uh, 20 different points where James seems to discuss, at least uh, at least allude to ways in which we should be directing and controlling our speech. And so I'm just going to list those things out for you and uh, ask that you would just take those this week and pray through those, each one of those, and just ask the Lord, how am I doing in this particular area? And allow that to sort of refine you. So the four sections of the text, the first would be uh, section one, verses one through two, the difficulty of taming the tongue is where James begins. The second one, he moves on to the disproportionate power of the tongue, verses 3 through 5. The third section, the destruction caused by the tongue, verses 6 through 8. And then finally, the double-mindedness of the tongue, verses 9 through 12. So let's begin with verse 1. James begins this section by saying, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. Now, Bible study 101, one of the fundamental things when you're looking at how to interpret a text is if there's ever a point where you see a command issued by one of the apostles or one of the gospel writers, and he says, stop doing this or to start doing this, that it's fairly safe to assume that what's taking place in the community to which the author is writing is the very thing that he's telling them now to stop doing. And so the fact that he starts out by saying, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, uh, we may rightly uh, guess that there's probably an issue going on to this, in this community of too many people are striving after uh, becoming teachers. And why might that be the case in this community? Well, in the early ancient setting, in the early church, the office of being a teacher in the church was, was really uh, the equivalent of being a rabbi in some of the Jewish circles. These were the people that were entrusted with handling the oracles of God, of relaying the truth of God to the people of God. And keep in mind, this is in a society and in the time when majority of people are illiterate. Majority of people cannot read for themselves, cannot interpret for themselves. Therefore, they can't uh, read and, and study for themselves the words of God. And that's coupled with the fact that there aren't personal Bibles. There is a Bible that the local congregation has that they share, and all those things combined just reveal how being a teacher in this time particularly was a position that offered you prestige and power, uh, presumably among the community. And so that there were people that were likely striving wrongly after this prestige and power and not rightly considering the weight of this office. We see this a little bit more. If you were to just jump down and look at verse 13 and 14, James says, who is wise and understanding among you? That is, who are the wise and understanding people? These would be probably the teachers in the community. Um, he's referring to these people in an official sense. He continues, by their good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast 
and be false to the truth? When he's saying, by your good conduct and by the meekness, by your meekness, demonstrate your wisdom. Basically, what he's saying is, don't show me or stop showing me your wisdom by telling me how much you know. Show me your wisdom by actually acting it out. Let me observe it passively, your good conduct to, that evidences the wisdom that you possess, the meekness, the humility in which you carry yourself. Let me see that instead of what he goes on to say, this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, trying to promote yourselves, boasting what is false of the truth. So again, there seemed to be this coveting of power. And I know even perhaps at the beginning, even right now in this text, some of you are thinking, well, I'm not a teacher. I don't aspire to be a teacher. So perhaps this part of the text doesn't really apply to me. I can sort of check out and check back in later. And I would just caution you against that and perhaps suggest that why don't we together consider just the the mind of the man who is saying this right now. Again, this is James, right, the brother of Jesus, one who knew Jesus from birth, one who would have an excuse more than probably most of saying, because of my familiarity with him, because I know him so well, maybe I have a bit of a pass of of being so self-critical of myself, of really seeing myself in the same company of those who might expose themselves to the judgment of God. And yet he clearly includes himself in this group of those who are in danger of being judged with greater strictness. Because he begins by referencing them, by saying, you all, let not many of you become teachers. And then rather saying, rather than saying, because many of you will face the judgment of God, he includes himself. He says, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, greater severity. There's a greater danger of being exposed to the wrath of God based on the words that we use and the things that we say as those who claim to speak for God. And he goes on in verse 2 and says, For we all stumble in many ways. That is, in our speech, there are many ways in which we can stumble. There are many points in which we can err and stray and go wrong in the things that we say. It's not just the content, what we say, that can be wrong, but how often is the manner in which we say the things that we say wrong and offensive to God? Paul takes up this point in 1 Corinthians 13 where he says that even if you speak with the tongues of angels, if you, even if you have angelic speech and yet your words aren't soaked and bathed in love, the words that you impart to other people, then you're nothing more than a clanging gong or a noisy cymbal. That God values not just the things that we say, but the manner in which we say them. Not only that, but God holds us to account if we claim to know the truth, whether you're a teacher or just a believer, if you claim to affirm the truth of the gospel, you are held at a higher standard of walking and living in conformity with that truth that you claim to know. Not only that, but if you claim to be a follower of Christ and you are speaking the truth to other people, you are called to lovingly continue to pursue them and to the ends of the earth call all people to obey and to walk in conformity with Jesus. There's so many ways in which we can stumble with the words that we say. 
so much so that James says, he goes on in verse 2 to say, if any man, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. This is a very confident uh, assertion that James is making here. He's saying that basically, show me a man who was able to perfectly control his tongue, and I will show you a man who is sinless, flawless. This is perfection in this sense. He's talking about absolute perfection. He doesn't mean it in the same sense in which other passages in the New Testament, uh, people like Paul will refer to perfection in the sense of being mature and, and walking more consistently with Christ. He means absolute perfection in this sense. Basically, he's saying the hardest thing for you to do would be to control your tongue. He elevates it above sexual immorality. He elevates it above any other sin that you could commit. He would elevate it above murder and your anger. Show me someone who is able to control their tongue, and they've done the hardest thing that there is to do. And why is that? He probably, after hearing his brother, Jesus, when he was conducting his earthly ministry, speaking a number of times, would have heard Jesus say that it's out of the overflow of your heart that your mouth speaks. That it's not things that go into your mouth that defile you, but the things that come out of your mouth that defile you. Basically, more than any other thing, the words that you say, the things that come out of your mouth, how you give utterance, are a direct reflection of what's going on within you, within your heart, within your soul that whatever is going on in there, whatever you're harboring, whatever uh, resentment or jealousy or any other sinful uh, sentiments and emotions that are dwelling, residing, festering within your heart, they will come out of your mouth. So show me someone who is able to control that, and I'll show you someone who is able to control everything else. He elevates our speech, the words that we use, to a preeminent level. When I was uh, a child, I mean, I have recollections of when we would go to the doctor's office, and you go into the doctor's office, and you hop up on uh, the little stand there with that noisy paper that I hate that my kids ruffle every time that they go. Um, and you sit there, and the doctor will, just for a casual checkup, he'll do a number of things. He'll put the, whatever the thing is called in your ear. I wanted to say a stethoscope, but that's definitely not right. In your ear, he'll check your eyesight, he'll check your blood pressure, and one of the things that at least uh, I remember they used to do is to ask you to stick out your tongue. And they'll take one of those popsicle sticks, those wide popsicle sticks, and sort of flatten it out and examine uh, what's going on in your mouth. And what's the reason for why the doctor does that? It's not merely just to see if your tongue itself is healthy or if your, your breath smells good. It's so much more than that. Your tongue can reveal so much about your overall health. It can reveal uh, deficiencies you may have in your overall health. It can reveal um, just other, other weaknesses in your body that sort of start to manifest themselves and reveal symptoms in your mouth. And so even on an earthly level, we have a practical application of uh, the fact that examining your mouth and examining your tongue can reveal so much more about the whole body, the whole person. And what, what he, uh, James, launches into is really sort of as a spiritual physician, a diagnosis of our tongues. And so moving on to the second section, verses 3 through 5, he starts by uh, giving a few examples that show the disproportionate power of the tongue. And so he starts with a few 
illustrations to get them on the right track. Verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. A horse is an example of a large, powerful, energetic creature that you can manipulate direct by a simple wooden bit that you place in his mouth and you're able to steer this giant creature. Uh, Verse 4, he sort of takes the illustration actually up uh, a slight level when he says, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. This is a larger uh, entity in a ship versus a uh, horse that not only is it difficult to navigate this large uh, sea vessel, but it's, the problem is confounded by the literally violent winds that beat against the hull of the ship that causes uh, waves to cause the ship to turn and thrash about that threaten to break the masts of the ship. You've probably all seen, if you've seen a movie where there's ever been a ship that's out at sea and is caught in the middle of a storm and just the degree to which the pilot is struggling to steer this ship. And really, he's ultimately trying to steer this tiny rudder uh, and is able to fight off the waves and turn this giant vessel. We have contemporary examples, James says, of a small uh, thing being able to steer and turn a much larger thing. So he says in verse 5, So also the tongue is a small member. But not only is the tongue capable of steering something larger than itself, but he begins to turn the ship. It's as if he's turning that figurative ship in verse 4 into the storm instead of away from the storm. He says that our tongue is what so frequently, so often turns us into sin, is able to turn our whole body, the whole course of our life into sin, into paths of destruction, the words that we say, the way that we choose to express ourselves He says it boasts of great things. How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. This last illustration is a negative one. You've heard stories of uh, some of those out-of-control forest fires that rage out in like the Pacific Northwest um, that so often are set ablaze by something small, just the brush being overly dry or someone dropping a cigarette or some small spark that causes the entire um, forest to go up in one large conflagration, one large fire that spreads out of control. And it's here that he begins to really hone on, hone in on as he moves into verse 6, this destruction that this small vessel in your mouth is able to cause. So section, uh, the third section, the destruction caused by the tongue, starting in verse 6, he says, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness, a world of unrighteousness. That, just that word choice uh, struck me, convicted me. When, when you think of a world, he's saying that there is so much iniquity, so much uh, sinning that happens in this small space in your mouth that it's like a world in and of itself of sin, of unrighteousness. I was reading a, uh, one pastor that was talking about one of his experiences being on a plane and 
uh, looking for some of the in-flight entertainment, and so he picked up a magazine in the back of the seat in front of him, and in one of the articles that he was reading, there was um, a picture quiz, and a picture quiz is one of those things where uh, there are various things that are photographed at unusual angles or unusually zoomed in or zoomed out, and uh, the reader is meant to guess what is this an actual picture of based on this odd angle of the photograph. Um, and one of the photographs that this pastor saw, it was a striking photograph that he believed was a picture of the moon, uh, full of craters and what he described as a dark world of death. It was dark, full of craters, just as the moon would be. And yet when he turned to the back of the magazine to check the answers, he realized that it was, actual, it was actually a picture of the human tongue, zoomed in. And this pastor, of course, always looking to find application in everyday life, uh, said that he was astonished to find the picture and how appropriate it was in combining. He drew the link between that picture and the book of James, and particularly this verse. That what he believed, that what appeared to him to be an, an entire planet-like structure in the moon, an entire world, was in fact this tiny uh, instrument in the mouth of the human. And he goes on to say, the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is itself set on fire by hell. Now, it's interesting the word choice that he uses here when he says that it is set among our members, because literally the word means appointed. And any time that that type of idea of being appointed is used, it means that there was a purpose, a deliberate purpose behind uh, giving this particular instrument, this particular part of the body. For something to have a purpose that's part of our body, that means who gave it its purpose? God did in his creation of humanity. When he's saying that the tongue was appointed, God appointed our tongues, and using his uh, verse here and the rest of just the witness of Scripture together, that God gave us the ability to speak he appointed our tongues to have a, a blessing effect to us and, and that our blessing would resound, redound back to him. He gave us the ability, again, to express, to give vent to the feelings of joy and thankfulness and praise that ought to be stirring up within us, uh, giving them vent, allowing them to erupt and to explode forth out of our mouths in praise back to him. He appointed it for the task of giving vent to our souls. And yet, looking at his language here, you can see that it is not used often as a means of blessing God, but as a means of dishonoring him. He says this was appointed in our members and it's staining the whole body. Again, to just continue to harp on Jesus' metaphor of uh, or his saying that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can imagine that if within our hearts, if within us, there was uh, a sewage-like substance that was just putrid and, and foul and just festered, it just reeked. If that were what was in our hearts that our mouths gave expression to and it flowed forth out of our mouths and it began to run down and stain our garments and stain our bodies, that's sort of the image that James is harping on here, that what comes out of us is staining us. It is 
defiling us because of the way we choose to use our words to cut at one another, to curse one another, to be full of complaining and uh, anxious worries and doubt and attributing falsehood to our Creator. It stains our whole body. Setting on fire the entire course of life. This expression, the course of life, he's uh, literally saying the wheel of origin. It's an odd expression that comes from the Hebrew and, and the ancient world, but uh, this idea of this, it stains our whole wheel of life that constantly revolves around and around. And the, the point of the image is to say that at any point on the wheel, you are constantly in a state of going up and going down, going up and going down, and going up and going down. And it goes on and on throughout life that life is a constant pattern of ups and downs, ups and downs, ups and downs. And what James is saying is that throughout that process, whether we're up, whether we're down, whether we're back up again, whether we're back down again, we never cease to uh, sin in what we say in the highs and in the lows of life. Where our, our nature is so tarnished by sin that even in the best of times, when God has uh, blessed us immensely with the things that we have, we uh, never cease to see what those around us may have that we would rather have. And we use that as a, a means of a complaining or growing anxious or uh, just being unthankful, ways in which we can sin even in the highs of life, and then especially in the lows of life, when trouble sets in, when, when there's a feeling of despair, when things aren't happening the way that we want to, what comes out is often just complaints and grumbling, um, anxiety, worry, doubt, even cursing God if we reach that point. We are constantly in our up and down cycle of life. We are in the process of sinning with our mouths. So much so that in the end, oddly enough, the very thing that sets fire metaphorically to all that is around us, our relationships, and destroys the things in our life and destroys our walk with the Lord, it is itself set on fire when in judgment, apart from repentance and trusting in Christ, is itself is consumed by fire and hell. He goes on, verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Here in this verse, with this, uh, what you see here is sort of a fourfold uh, reference to the animal kingdom. He mentions one, uh, beast, two, birds, three, reptiles, four, sea creatures. With that, he is alluding back to the original creation account back in Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 26. If you remember when God created man and he assigned him a task and he said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, one, birds of the heavens, over the livestock and all the earth, three, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, or every reptile. This is an allusion that would not have been lost to the Jewish audience that was listening to James. Basically, he's saying that he's pointing them back to the original charge that God gave to all of humanity in subduing and ruling over the entire earth, of uh, imputing God's image into all of creation and causing it to reflect back to him in glory and splendor. He's essentially saying that that task 
that task is even more feasible than the task of taming, of ruling, of subduing your own, this tiny little vessel in your mouth. That's how serious our words are that we use. Um, I forget what Sean said in one of his sermons ago, but I'm going to throw him under the bus because he's not here. But he had mentioned how many words that we use uh, just during a day. He mentioned that women happen to use a lot more words than men. I thought it was a bad illustration, but <laughs> nevertheless, he believed it biblical, and he's our lead pastor, so... Uh, but just how many opportunities there are in the day to, that we sin, and we often displease the Lord with the words that we use. James is saying the task that God assigned us for ruling all of creation is even more difficult than taming this unruly beast in our mouths. In verse 8, he says, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now, in the opening of verse 8, some church fathers, and I think rightly, have spotted a glimmer of hope that James offers in the beginning of this verse when he says, but no human being can tame the tongue. Literally, it's more explicit. No one, no one of mankind, he's really just using awkward language there that sort of... Uh, doesn't fit smoothly. No one of mankind can tame this tongue. And people like Augustine, one of the early church fathers, rightly observed that he does not say that no one can tame the tongue whatsoever, but no one of men. So that when the tongue is tamed, we confess that it is brought about by the pity, by the help, and by the grace of a compassionate God. It's not a hopeless thing. James isn't trying to beat us into hopelessness. He's trying to cause us to more wholeheartedly continue our walk with the Lord, those of us who profess faith in Christ. Again, he's, he's, he's coaxing people out of this double-minded way of living that so often we can find ourselves falling into a half-hearted pursuit of the Lord, a half-hearted leaning upon His Spirit, a half-hearted pursuit of His words and of tearing with Him and of prayer, regularity in those things. Because when we do walk with the Lord, it is not our power but His that is able to tame the tongue. Imperfectly in this life, yes, but nevertheless continually moving us toward perfection in the next. And this ending, this when he says, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Just like how in the creation account, if you were to look again at, at Genesis one twenty six, the last thing that God mentions that humans were to rule over is the things that creep along the ground and sort of it's not a natural progression of like lesser to greater you would think that he would move from rule humans over things of the ground and birds of the air and even the large animals of the livestock the creatures of the sea but he ends on this very small reference to uh, a reference to this very small creature the things that creep along the ground and the reason is it's it's leading into the stories that will follow with one of the most unruly creatures of the ground that man failed to rule in the serpent. 
Similarly here, uh, this is a reference that alludes to um, the activity of the serpent or the devil, this restlessness of the evil of our tongue, um, the way in which our tongue is it's as if when it says it's restless, it roams the wild, it's quick to defend itself, it's swift to attack others, it's anxious to subdue others, it's always marked by evil. Uh, this restlessness, it mimics Satan in many respects. If you uh, recall places like in Job where Satan says that he is constantly going to and fro about the earth, and even uh, one of the apostles, Peter, describes Satan as a roaring lion who is constantly seeking whom he may devour, constantly going to and fro. He's restless. His evil never ceases. It's constantly at work. James is likening our speech to this unruly ancient foe of ours, pointing out that we're much more, oftentimes we're much more like him than we are like the God who called us to himself. Finally, the last section here, he brings it again back to just one of his uh, main sub-themes throughout the book, this issue of double-mindedness, particularly now with our tongues. Verse 9, he says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Again, this, this likeness of God imagery pointing us back to creation, pointing us back to the early chapters of Genesis, it's as if Throughout this whole uh, second half of uh, verses 6 through 12, he's constantly pointing us back with references to the original creation order. It's as if he, what he's straining to do is to get all people to reimagine and realize their basic relationship as creature to creator, pointing back to our fundamental distinction between uh, those who owe our entire existence to our creator and the one who himself is self-existent. We are people that our creator has made in his grace and kindness to be in his image. Unique of all creatures that have been created, we have an ability to, to know and to grasp after him and to walk with him and to understand him and to mimic him, to imitate him, to spend all of eternity chasing down his glory because we have a similar nature to his own. He's endowed every single human being, even those that you hate, your enemies, with this great value of being one who is made in the image of God. And so the audacity, the, the boldness that we would have to ever treat anyone who is before us as anything less than one who is made in the image of God, one whom has the, the stamp of God upon their lives. Um, I forget exactly what the quote was, but C.S. Lewis once uh, spoke of the fact that every time he, he tried to grow to a point where every time he was looking at another person in front of them, he tried to envision them not as they were in that moment, but as they would be when they are standing when they are perfected either in the presence of God or they are horribly and tragically condemned in all that is good and, and right in them, all the glimpses of God's glory and kindness and grace upon them when those things are stripped away. And it's either something that is incredibly beautiful that would leave all of us speechless if we saw it in this moment and yet uh, possibly even terrified at just its grandeur and beauty. 
or horrified at what we would see. The image of God is a significant thing, and yet he says that while we bless the Lord and Father together, we still use the same instrument that God has appointed for blessing, for cursing of those around us. Again, this isn't just, uh, when the Bible talks about cursing, they're not talking about abusive language, like how we think of curse words, bad words that we don't want to say, but cursing is much more significant in uh, the scriptures. To curse is to basically wish upon someone or to consign someone the uh, fate of basically being excluded from the blessing and benefits of God, to wish evil upon someone or to wish that God did not bestow their, their blessing and their kindness or their forgiveness upon someone. In that sense, we're, we're cursing, we're, we're wishing ill will, something other than the lavish love of Christ that he's shown us upon other individuals. Whether it's ex- explicitly or even in the most subtle uh, outbursts against the people that we um, are against. Jesus says, even if we utter raka, a simple word of this, ah, fool, to someone else, that we'd be in danger of hellfire. Even the most subtle ways in which we lash out against those around us. And so just wrapping up this thing, he says, uh, this section, he says, from the same mouth, brothers, come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. They should not be so. There's a spring Pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water. And this imagery just of a spring, uh, let's not, let it not be lost upon us that this is a society in a time that, uh, where people valued water way much more than uh, many of us do in, this, in our Western society where water is plenteous, it's available, it's everywhere. Um, fresh waters were vital to the creation, the sustenance of entire villages. All ancient communities, ancient villages, ancient cities were established around sources of fresh water in order for people to survive. Water, fresh water, was synonymous with life, uh, with having a life-giving quality and synonymous with sustaining life. And salt water, just the opposite. So again, James is envisioning that the, the spirit of life that dwells within us is itself meant to produce a consistent fountain of life that overflows, that wells out of the heart and blesses all that are around us. And it ought to be consistently fresh because you never see springs that are fresh in one moment and salt the next and fresh in one moment and salt the next, life-giving in one moment and life-destroying in the next, and he's saying, brothers, you ought to be consistently walking with the Lord in order that you might be a constant source of life-giving fresh water as you've been commanded by your Lord. And finally, just wrapping up, the, wrapping up this section, it's as if he begins or he ends in a sense almost where he began uh, by reminding us of his brother because this statement that he ends with is almost a verbatim um, quote of his brother, of Jesus, in Matthew 7, 16, when he says, Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. 
he ends this section by just reminding us again, uh, this time, not so much of the end judgment of the Lord that uh, he began, where he began, where uh, he focused on us standing ultimately before the presence of the Lord, but here, reminding us of um, that Son of Man, that kind Son of Man who came to earth and taught gently and meekly and led his sheep meekly with uh, sayings as common as this. So finally, I said that uh, I just wanted to leave you then with um, a, a list. Uh, these are actually 20 resolutions, and I was uh, people had admonished me in the first service and not just ask you all to write them down, that I'll actually like email these out so you don't have to be scribbling right now because the first service people were like doing like this and weren't able to follow exactly what was being said. Um, so I want to just list these, but, but there was a pastor who had gone through the book of James, and really it was eye-opening to me to see this, that there are so many places in which James lays out different aspects of how we use our words and how we ought to uh, be using our speech. And so these can sort of serve, I, I want you to take these, and just throughout this week, either in your community group or with your family or just uh, in your own private devotion, but... I would encourage you to take these and pray through these individually and eat, using each one as sort of a barometer for where you are at with uh, being a steward of your speech. And so I'll just I'll lay them out. Um, again, you don't have to write these down. You can just write the verse numbers down that I, that I reference, or you can just wait for that email, or you can take your phone out, as some people were doing, and just take pictures of the screen, because it'll be up on the screen. I won't be offended. So number one. These are 20 different resolutions that are found in the book of James. Number one, this pastor said, resolved to ask God for wisdom to speak and to do so with a, with a single mind. He gets this from James 1, verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him, in faith with no doubting, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Number two, resolved to boast only in my exaltation in Christ or my humiliation in the world. He gets that from chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. Number three, resolved to set a watch over my mouth. Chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Don't say that, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Number four, to be constantly quick to hear and slow to speak, James 1.19. Number five, to learn the gospel way of speaking to the poor and the rich. That's in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and the issue of partiality that we mentioned before. Number six, to speak in the consciousness of the final judgment, to speak in uh, constant awareness of the final judgment, chapter 2, verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Number seven, to never stand on anyone's face with words that demean, despise, or cause despair, chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, but without giving them the things that they need for the body, what good is that? Number eight, to never claim a reality that I do not experience. 
chapter 3, verse 14, again, he said, if you have bitter, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Number nine, to resist quarrelsome words as marks of a bad heart. Chapter 4, verse 1, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is, not, is it not this, the passions that are at war within you? Number 10, to never speak evil of another. Pretty self-evident in chapter 4, verse 11. Uh, number 11, to never boast in what I will accomplish. Chapter 4, verse 13, James describes um, speaking too far into the future as if you know what every day will hold um, in the future rather than relying upon the providence of God. Number 12, to always speak as one who is subject to the providences of God. Again, James 4, verse 15. Number 13, we're getting there, round of the horn. To never grumble knowing that the judge is at the door. James 5, verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Number 14. To never allow anything but total integrity in my speech. That comes from chapter 5, verse 12. Above all, brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Number 15, to speak to God in prayer whenever I suffer. Chapter 5, verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Do you do that? Take your sufferings to God. Is, is prayer a regular diet when you're on that low part of that revolving wheel? Speaking and praying to God. Number 16, to sing praises whenever I am cheerful. Again, verse five, chapter 5, verse 13, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing. Sing to the Lord. Number 17, to ask for the prayers of others when I am sick. Chapter 5, verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Do we take seriously the power of God to actually manipulate this physical world and the physical realm and our physical bodies? Do we believe that he is actually able to accomplish these things and rely upon him in prayer? Number 18, to confess whenever I have failed Chapter 5, verse 16, confess your sins to one another. Again, uh, number 19, to pray for one another when I am together with others in need. Uh, again, chapter 5, verse 16, to pray for one another that you may be healed. And finally, number 20, to speak words of restoration when I see another wandering. Chapter 5, verse 19 through 20 says, My brothers, if any one of you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, that would be through a word, through bringing the gospel to him. Let him know that whoever brings a sinner back from his wandering will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So again, in closing, it, it seems that this issue of our speech is one of the predominant themes throughout the book of James. How we use our words is not something to be taken lightly, but we ought to reorients ourselves to the way in which God views every word that comes out of our mouths, whether it's for blessing or for cursing. Because Jesus himself, the one to whom we will give an account, says that we will give uh, an account for every idle word that we've spoken. And so this book of James is replete with practical examples 
not just of high theology, but of what, what is this daily fight, uh, dying to self, of struggling to walk in conformity with Christ in regards to our speech look like. So let's take those, those week, this week and just pray that the Lord would, would help us to watch our speech and would give us the strength to control our tongues. Let's pray. Father, I know that uh, so often um, Bible study in general and, and particularly books uh, like James, we can fall into the trap of thinking that they are overly mundane, that they only deal with basic things that once we quickly learn at the beginning of our walk with you, that we can move on to greater and higher things, and yet we are naive in the way in which we underestimate the severity of our sin and the ways in which we offend you. Lord, I pray that you would just restore to us a, a greater sense that the ability to speak before anything was created in the mind of God that you thought of this gift that you would give to humanity, the ability to give vent to express the sentiments that stir up in the heart, that they wouldn't be bottled up, but that we would be able to uh, sing the praises of you, that we would be able to confess your glory and your excellencies as a way of increasing our joy and our walk with you. And yet, uh, we confess, Lord, that so often that very precious gift that you have given us in the ability to speak, we squander, we spoil and we are reckless and wasteful with how we use our words. And yet, um, and just so, Lord, I, I just pray that you would sober us, that we would become, uh, as James and as other writers in the book of Proverbs, um, describe the wise man who is of few words, so that when we do speak, our words matter. Help us to be quick to hear and slow to speak. Help us to be quick to pray, to lift one another up in prayer to give forth words of life that would encourage and edify the body and draw the lost world to you. I just pray that you would help us to be more like Christ, specifically in the way in which we speak. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.